Uh, turn with me this morning to Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. Uh, we're going to start there, and then we're going to move back to the Old Testament. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And when one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, he recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Uh, is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to, the, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered thoughtfully, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would dare to ask him any more questions. So the scribe comes up to Jesus and he asks him, What commandment is the foremost commandment. Uh, What commandment from God is the most fundamental, the most central to living a life that that pleases him? And Jesus answers, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's really not that complicated, is it? It's really not. Um, everything that God commands for us to do is wrapped up in two pretty simple commands. Uh, Do you want to live a life that's pleasing to God? Then love God, love other people. The question is, do we, right? Do we? Many of you are probably aware uh, that Jesus is not coming up with these words on the spot. Instead, he's, um, he's quoting the Shema, from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to turn to the Shema and we're going to really dig into some of the words uh, that are found there and and, and just try to mine some some stuff out about what it really means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, uh, with all of our soul. So now let's flip back to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. Do any of you guys, when you're trying to, like, put something in alphabetical order, you have to, like, say the alphabet? <laughs> so I used, to, like, I used to think I was stupid because I had to do that, and then I found out that apparently everybody does that. Um, I also do that with books in the Bible. Like, it doesn't matter how many times I've read it and I know it's there. I go, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. We're going to spend this morning just on on those verses. Again, 
These words are known as the, as the Shema. So the Shema became, uh, became a prayer, prayed morning and evening by the Jewish people for, for millennia. And uh, we, we could almost think of it as, as equivalent to, uh, to the Lord's Prayer in, in the Christian tradition, right? So our, uh, my football team in high school, before games, we would, we would huddle up in the locker room before we went out on the field and we would say the Lord's Prayer. Um, King James styles, of course. Um, and the number of people who actually cared about saying it or meant it, that's another story. Uh, that's one of the, just one of the quirks of, of growing up in Texas, I think. Um, it's kind of like we got our game plan. Everybody knows their job, what they're supposed to do. Now let's say the Lord's Prayer, see if maybe that'll help too. Uh, question was always, well, if the other team is also saying the Lord's Prayer, then, right? Um, the point being that that just about everybody's familiar with the Lord's Prayer, uh, regardless of religious background. Um, I, I found out, I'm sure a lot of you guys know this, but that Ernest Hemingway spent a lot of time in, in Sun Valley and is, is buried there. And so I got, uh, I was like, I need to read a couple of Hemingway books. And like the very first of one of the books I was reading, he says the Lord's, like, the Lord's Prayer within the, the story. Um, so it, it's everybody knows it. Everybody's familiar with it. Uh, the Shema was this way to the ancient Jewish people. Everybody was familiar with it. Everybody knew it. Everybody said it, whether they meant it or not. Um, it was part of the life of an ancient Jew. So here in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, it's, a, it's a collection of speeches given by Moses to a new generation. So the previous generation, God led out of Egypt, led them right up to the border of the promised land. They sent spies. The spies came out and said, we can't do it. Uh, The people are too big. We'll get defeated. The people believed them. And so God said, well, fine. If you don't want the promised land, then you can just wander around for 40 years and then give it to the next generation. So Moses is speaking to this next generation. uh, And he's really urging them to not repeat the mistakes of their parents. And so uh, he, he repeats the Lord's Prayer and all kinds of Old Testament law uh, and stuff like this. And so now it's, it's the next generation's turn. And so here is where the Shema comes into play. A really important verse. And what we're going to do is we're going to dig into uh, just, just a, handful, a handful of the words and try to mine the treasure out of their meaning. Because we read it one way and I think maybe it makes sense to us. But I think if we spend some time really digging into these words, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come alive uh, in a new way to us. And I want to give a, a disclaimer first. Uh, when I was in, in college, I took four semesters of biblical Greek, but I did not touch Hebrew. Um, so all that to say that, that this morning is not coming from my own knowledge of Hebrew, but it's coming from me reading uh, really smart scholars who do know Hebrew really well. So I don't want you guys to think like, man, this kid just, uh, right? Because uh, I'm not, I don't, I, I don't read the language. I have to have like the trans, English transliterations, all that kind of stuff. Um, but realistically, a lot of this wouldn't require much Hebrew knowledge. It would require a concordance to see, okay, here's the word here, and then let's see how it's used elsewhere in Scripture and kind of put together a cohesive understanding of the word. So let's look at the, the first word, um, hear, or maybe listen in some of your translations. Uh, in Hebrew, the word is Shema. Uh, it's the word that the, the prayer is named for. And I don't think we need to dig into this word too deep because I think we get it. Uh, if I tell my daughter to, to listen to me, I expect that she listens to me 
and like does what I'm telling her to do. When I say listen, I don't just mean physically hear me. I say hear me and respond to what I'm telling you. Whether that happens or not, it's a different story. Um, the word the word Shema uh, is used a lot in the Psalms. When the Psalm writers will offer, they'll offer up Christ to God, they'll often start with the word Shema. And what they mean is for God not just to hear them, but to hear and to respond to them. Um, they're, they're pleading with God and they're saying, hear me, respond to me in, in my trouble, respond to me with help. Uh, what is interesting about the word Shema, I think, is that in, in biblical Hebrew, there is not a word for obey. Um, in, in English, we would say obey, and what that means is somebody in authority tells you to do something, you do what they tell you to do. You obey them. Uh, in Hebrew, there is not a word like that. Instead, it's wrapped up in the word Shema. Um, so if, if you're going to tell somebody to listen and obey, you just say Shema. If you were going to say, I will listen to you, and I will respond to you in obedience, not that we'd say that in English. Uh, that'd be great to come out of my four-year-old's mouth. But um, you would just say, I, I shema. Listening and obeying are two sides of the same coin. It's the same thing. To listen is to obey. Uh, if someone tells you to do something and you don't do it, then you didn't actually hear them in the first place. So hear and respond with obedience, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Uh, So that's the word listen and getting that one kind of out of the way. Heart, soul, and might are really uh, the three words that I I think I really really want to dig into. So first, love the Lord your God with all your heart, or in Hebrew, the, the word love. Um, so I don't think this phrase really seems too foreign to us because we use things like this all the time. We say, uh, you broke my heart. I love you with all of my heart. My heart is happy, right? Uh, or if you're from the South, bless your heart, uh, which is not a compliment. It's used in the context like that girl is having a hard time getting her act together bless her heart. Uh, That poor kid wants to be good at basketball, but he has no coordination. Bless your heart. Um, It's one of those, like, if you're not, like, from the South or if you've never heard it, you're like, oh, that's sweet. If you're from the South and someone says, bless your heart, you, like, give them a look, like, don't talk down to me, right? Um, My mom says it all the time in her Southern. She has much more of an accent than I do. Uh, the, the thing is, though, that we mean those things as metaphors. When we say, you broke my heart, we mean it as a metaphor. I don't actually mean that my heart is broken. Uh, if someone says, my heart is happy, they don't actually mean my heart is happy. Like, I don't love my wife with my heart, even though oh, I love you with my whole heart. I don't actually mean that, right? I love her with my brain, right? Well, that sounded bad. Oh, well. Uh, I love her with my brain, right? But here's a key thing to, to remember um, when we read things in the Bible about the heart is that the biblical authors did not mean it as a metaphor. They meant it very, very literally. Uh, we, we have to remember that God chose to inspire the writers of the Bible when he chose to inspire them. And it, as such, uh, meant for the way they view the world, the way they view the way the body works to shine through their writing. Um, 
So they knew the heart was an organ in the chest that sustained life. There's mention of a heart attack in the book of uh, 1 Samuel. Um, And they also knew that the brain physically existed, but they had no concept of, of what the brain did or how it worked. If we remove ourselves from modern technology, right, I think we could very easily see uh, how, how this stuff in your head, not understanding what it does. Uh, in fact, if you, if you Google, because I did this, because I was like, oh, I'm going to test this theory out. I Googled brain and biblical Hebrew, and the closest you're going to come up with is the word mind uh, in English, and it's always the word lev, the same word translated here as heart. So instead, uh, the Hebrew authors of the Old Testament imagined very literally, not metaphorically, very literally, that all intellectual and emotional activity actually happened in your heart. And, and it makes sense if you think about it. When you're scared, what happens? Your heart beats fast. When you're nervous, you kind of feel it in, the, in, in your chest. When you fall in love with somebody and you have those butterflies like I have for my wife that I love with all of my heart, um, you, you, act, you like feel it in your chest, right? So if you don't if you don't have the modern medical technology to understand some of these things, like it makes, it makes sense, right, that these things happen actually in your heart. So I think what could be helpful is to, is to look at some other verses in the Bible where the heart is used. Um, and when we read these verses, I don't, we don't struggle with them because we read them metaphorically. Like, and we're like, oh, I get the metaphor. But instead of reading them metaphorically the way we do with our modern lens, let's actually read them uh, and, and take them literally the way... They were written the way they were meant to be read originally. Uh, I'm not going to give the verse references to these because there's, there's too many, but I'm just going to read some verses where the heart is mentioned, uh, and not just the heart, but various functions of the heart to build a big picture of when, uh, when the author writes, love the Lord your God with all your heart, like what he means by that. So here we go. Thus you shall know in your heart that Yahweh your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. For you have hidden their heart from insight, therefore you will not exalt them. Wisdom rests in the heart of the one who has understanding. So give your servant a listening heart to judge your people to discern between good and evil. Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Indeed, we heard it, and our hearts melted, and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Therefore, I turned my heart to despair of all my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became for me joy and gladness in my heart." So the heart is the generator of physical life, as we know, uh, but it is also the center of your emotional and your intellectual life. Um, you, you didn't think with your brain. You think with your heart. You don't feel things uh, like feelings of joy were not the result of chemicals like serotonin and dopamine and all of these things in our brain. They were things that actually happened physically in your heart. The heart is also where you made decisions. In 1 Kings 8:17, King David had it in his heart to build a temple for God. 
In Psalm 37, 4, we see that, that the heart is where your desires and your affections are centered. It says, delight yourself in Yahweh, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Uh, and Proverbs 4, 23 tells us, guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. So for, for the modern reader, for us, uh, the heart is the organ that supplies your body with blood so that you can get the oxygen you need. Like, that's what our heart is. Sure, we use metaphors, but we know what the heart does. Um, uh, may make decisions, controls our emotions. Um, our brain is what does those things. Uh, more specifically, in our prefrontal cortex is the decision-making, um, which interestingly does not mature until your mid-20s. Um, and I... <laughs> And in women, uh, it matures faster and earlier than men. Uh, and women's prefrontal cortex is actually larger than a man's prefrontal cortex. So that, that probably explains a lot. Uh, I remember taking adolescent psychology in college and like learning about you know, brain development in adolescence and stuff. Uh, and that, you know, like when, when a teenager does something stupid and you're like, why did you do that? And they say, I don't know. Like, don't give me that. Oh, like, that's actually. They actually don't know because their brains aren't developed. Uh, yeah, not until I think like 25 for men. So God bless it. Um, but we, we know what happens in the brain. We know what happens in the heart. But again, to the Old Testament authors, all of these things, thinking, emotions, intelligence, decisions, are all in the heart. That's why in Jeremiah 17.9, he says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? So for Jeremiah and for other Hebrew prophets, the only hope for Israel was a complete renewal of the heart. Literally, not metaphorically, but literally. After David committed adultery and murder, double whammy, uh, he pleaded with God, create in me a new heart, right? His heart's not what made him did it. It was the stupid decisions in his undeveloped brain. Uh, but... He said, give me a new heart, because he believed that the heart is what did it. Um, again, not hard to understand, because I think we, we get, like, from a metaphorical perspective, but I think it deepens, um, it deepens our understanding and the impact of the word as we're reading the Old Testament to, to realize that these aren't, like, poetic metaphors, but no, like, like actually, knowledge actually happened in the heart. Judgment actually happened in the heart. Wisdom actually happened in the heart. So, so what are the implications when we read, love Yahweh, your God, with all of your heart? Um, I think when we read that, sometimes we think, oh, with, with all of my emotions. Love God with all of my heart the way I love like, my wife with all of my heart or something. Uh, and that's certainly part of it, but that's not all of it. When we, when we read, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, that's all of our emotional capacity, all of our intellectual capacity, all of our decision-making capacity. All of those things are wrapped up in that single word, heart. Love Yahweh your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul. So the next word I want to look at is the word, the word soul. Uh, the word soul here in the Shema is the Hebrew word nefesh, nefesh. Uh, and it, it occurs 700 times in the Old Testament. But uh, we, can, we can run into some difficulty um, when, when we read the word soul. 
when this word nephesh is translated as soul, we can run into some difficulty. Because when we hear the word soul, uh, what most people think of is like this, this disembodied part of a person um, that's like a non-physical, immoral, or not immoral, well, yeah. immortal aspect of a person that's like contained in our body or trapped in our body and then is released at death. I think that's what most people think of when they hear the soul. But what's interesting is that that definition of soul, um, that definition being a, uh, a non-physical part of us that's trapped in our body until we die and then it's released, uh, actually comes more from Greek philosophy than it does biblical tradition. You see it in, in other religions too. So, for example, Buddhism um, teaches that, that our soul is trapped in our body for endless cycles until we reach nirvana. And once we reach nirvana, then our soul is released to be like one with the universe. And I think, I think if you ask the average person on the street, what does the Bible uh, teach happens when a person dies? I think most people's answer would be some form of like the soul is released. Um, and I think it's interesting that, that that idea is is more rooted in Greek philosophy. There's a whole thing, a lot of things that we believe or that, that's common in Western thinking that comes straight from Greek philosophy. Um, of course, the Bible does speak to the idea of a person existing in some form after death as they await physical bodily resurrection. That's always the important part is that uh, it's, it's awaiting bodily resurrection. The Bible talks a lot about life now, and it talks about uh, future resurrection life, but it really, in the grand scheme of things, when we're taking Genesis to maps, it doesn't talk about that in-between stage a whole lot. Uh, that's why there's so much speculation of like, well, the moment of death, like, are, are we like, do, is there soul sleep, right? There's all kinds of opinions on it. Um, but, but when the Bible does talk about it, here's the point that I'm getting to. Uh, the word nephesh is not the word that's used. The word that's translated as soul right here is not the word that's used. Here is the most basic definition of the word nephesh in the Old Testament, and it's throat. That's the most basic definition of the word. Because if you think about it, um, today, you can have a serious injury to your throat uh, and you can survive, right? Like oxygen can be fed in artificially. Uh, IVs can hydrate you. You can get a feeding tube to get food. Like you can survive. Um, Not very long ago, that was not the case. If something happened to your throat, like you're done. Like lights out, right? There's no no saving that. So um, your throat was very much central to your life, right? So nephesh is actually a great word to use in multiple contexts when we think of like what, the, what purpose the throat serves. Here's a couple of examples. In Numbers 11, verse 6, the Israelites are wandering around the wilderness. Uh, they're hungry. They're thirsty. They're complaining to Moses. They said, you should have just left us in Egypt. It was much better to be a slave. At least we had food. Uh, and here is the phrase in, in a few different translations. Um, the North American or the New American Standard Bible says our appetite is gone. The English Standard Version says our strength is dried up. Uh, the Old King Jimmy says our soul has dried away. The words appetite, strength, and soul are various ways the word nephesh has been translated. So our throat is dried up 
is a really good way to say we're really hungry and we're really thirsty. Uh, Psalm 105, 18, it's talking about Joseph when he was uh, being hauled off into slavery. Uh, One version says his neck was put in a collar of iron. One version says, and he was laid in iron. Uh, One version says he himself was laid in irons. One version says his neck was put in irons. Uh, Wild guess, right? His nephesh was put in irons. When we see a word that's like translated multiple ways across different translations, that's always a good signal that there's something interesting about this word, right? There's something interesting about it. A couple other examples. Genesis 46.15 says there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family. In Numbers 31.19, a murderer is one who kills a nephesh. In Deuteronomy 24.7, a kidnapper is someone who kidnaps a nephesh. So here's kind of bringing it together is that a person doesn't have a nephesh. They are a nephesh. Nephesh describes like who we are in essence as human beings. Uh, in, in the Psalms, you, you see it a lot, but in Psalm 119, 175 specifically, it says, let my nephesh live that I may praise you. So the entire being, my entire life, my entire body as an offering to you. Let my nephesh live and praise you. Song of uh, Solomon or Song of Songs, the young woman uh, repeatedly refers to her love as the one who my nephesh loves. Usually translated the one my soul loves. Uh, Love is not just an intellectual thing. It's also an an emotional thing that encapsulates the whole person. Here's another one that you'll be familiar with. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you. My soul thirsts for the living God. So the word, of course, there is nephesh. Uh, And that's a really good one, right? Because the word nephesh can mean uh, me as a person. It can mean literally your throat, your neck. So as the deer pants for the water, as a deer gets thirsty and its throat is dry, it pants for the water, uh, in the same way, my soul, my nephesh, pants for the living God. As the deer's throat pants for water, so my throat pants for the living God. So love the Lord your God with your hearts, with all your emotional and intellectual capacity, all of your decisions, all of your thoughts, and then love the Lord your God with your soul. Uh, being not some uh, non-physical detached part of you, but with your entire existence, literally everything that makes you a living, breathing person. Love the Lord your God with that. Last word uh, is, is the word strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The Hebrew word here that's translated as, as strength or as might is me'od. Me'od. And this is my favorite word uh, in the Shema because it feels, if we've talked about emotional capacity, intellectual capacity, all you are as a person. Um, you'd think that probably like covers everything. But this word me'od really fills in all, all the blanks. It occurs about 300 times in the Old Testament, uh, and it does not really mean strength or might. Um, we'll get to why in a minute, like, okay, then why does it say strength or might? Uh, it's tr- kind of translation tradition that we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, there is a Hebrew word for strength or for might, and it is not this word. It's not me'od. Uh, the Shema is actually one of the very few places in the entire Old Testament 
that it's translated this way. Um, this, I, I hope you find this as fascinating as I do. You might just be like, this is stupid, uh, but I, I love it. Genesis 1, 31 says this. At the end of, at the end of each of God's creative acts, uh, it says what? That he saw it was good. Um, but in verse 31, God looks back at everything, and he says, it says, God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was me'od, good, very good, me'od, good. Genesis 7, verse 18, uh, the, talking about the flood, it says, and the water prevailed and multiplied greatly upon the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. Though the Hebrew word in there, the water prevailed and multiplied me'od upon the earth. Genesis 4, verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, uh, God had no regard. So Cain became me'od angry, and his countenance fell. First Samuel eleven fifteen, Saul became king, and all of the men of Israel rejoiced me'od, or greatly. Genesis 30, verse 43. So Jacob became me'od, me'od, prosperous. Numbers 14, 7. Uh, Israelite spies come back with their report. Uh, this whole reason Deuteronomy ended up happening was because of this. Um, the land which we passed through to spy out is a me'od, me'od land, or an exceedingly good land. Um, so do you get the picture of what the word me'od means. It doesn't mean strength. It doesn't mean might the way we think of it. Instead, it means very or much or, or greatly or when double, double for emphasis exceedingly. Um, so why is it translated then as might or strength? Uh, for one, love the Lord your God with all of your muchness. Uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, I don't think. Um, two, when Jewish scholars first translated the Old Testament into Greek, known as the Septuagint, um, they, I mean, they ran across some of the same translation difficulties that we run across and when you're translating from languages. Some things just don't translate super well. And this was one of those words, and so they used the, the Greek word uh, dunamis. And you've heard Mickey refer to that one. It means strength or power. It's where we get the, the English word dynamite. Um, and so that's, that's how they ended up translating it, and that's why kind of the tradition continued to where today we translate me'od as strength or might. So the word is a little bit difficult to translate. It's like when, when Bexley asked me, hey, Dad, what does this word mean? And I start to define it, and then I realize, like, oh, I have no idea how to, like, explain this word, right? It's like I use it all the time. I know what it is. Like, what's a box, right? There's, like, super deep philosophical questions that small kids ask. Like, what's a box? And it's like, well, it's a, it's a, it's a box, right? Like, I don't know. Um, me'od is kind of one of these words. It's hard to define, but then when you kind of see the context in which it's used in other areas, all of a sudden uh, it makes sense. To love God with all your variness doesn't, um, but when we see all those different uses, right? So the cool thing about using this word is that it's very open-ended, right? Love the Lord your God with your heart, with all of your emotional, intellectual capacity. That's pretty concrete. Uh, love the Lord your God with all of your nephesh, with all of your being, with who you are. That's pretty concrete. Love the Lord your God with all of your muchness, or love the Lord your God with all of your veriness, is, is less concrete. What it does 
is it opens the door to all of these endless possibilities of ways to love God. If you've loved God with your emotions, great. With your intellect, great. With your decisions, great. Uh, with, with who you are as a person, great. Now, all of these other little things in life, like everything that we do, every, uh, every situation, every conversation, every cup of coffee, every drive to work, every conversation with our spouse, every time we play with our kids, all of these things that happen in our life, all of our variness, all of our muchness, love God with these things. So hear and obey, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all of your emotional capacity, with all of your intellectual capacity, with all of your thoughts, with all of your decisions, with your very being, with all that you are as a person and anything else you can possibly think of. Um, I find digging into those words to really bring not just the Shema to life, but when we fast forward to what Jesus says when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responds with the Shema and love your neighbor. Because realistically, if we really loved God with all of these things that we're supposed to love God with, then all of a sudden the fretting over like what rules are we breaking kind of becomes a moot point, right? Because if we're loving God with everything that we have, then we're not having to worry about all of these other things. How does this tie in? The, the question is, how does this tie in to what we've um, been talking through over the past few weeks just about prayer and about seeking revival? Um, the, the truth is the reason that we're, that we're seeking revival here at Northridge and the reason that churches all over the United States are praying and seeking revival is because the Western church, by and large, has failed to live up to this commandment, to love God with our heart, soul, and strength. We've failed to love God with the entire fiber of our existence. If we ask the question, what is sin? Uh, we could define it a bunch of ways. Maybe if you like looked up in a systematic theology book, you'd get all these definitions of sin. It's an offense against God. It's transgression against God's commands. It's rebellion against God. But all of those really boil down to this, that sin is a failure in one way or another to love God with our whole heart, our whole soul, and our whole strength. Uh, if you've been to one of our concert of prayers um, over the last three weeks, and you know that we've started out always with private confession of sin to God, because we believe that revival starts in the hearts of us. And if you read the book that we read, um, it talks about that, that revival starts uh, when we confess our sin to the Lord. And confession is simply just uh, agreeing with God about what our sin is, to agree with God that we have failed to love him with our whole selves, that we failed to love our neighbors as ourselves. And it's asking God to make us aware of the areas of life in which we are failing to love him. Uh, and, and when we read the Shema and we see how much of that encapsulates us, then we can really ask ourselves the question, um, what, like, what areas of my life am I not loving God with, right? I know for myself a question that I've, um, that I've been asking recently um, is, uh, I'm into like personality, like stuff, like I just find personality fascinating. 
Um, and typically, like, people are either head-driven or heart-driven, right? Either are, are driven by, by your thought or by emotion. Um, and I know people get like, oh, I'm not one of those. But um, I'm, like, I'm very much a, a head person. Like, if something happens, I don't have, like, an emotional reaction to it initially. Uh, Megan is a heart person, so that's always – some of you probably uh, are in marriages where one of you is a heart person, one of you is a head person, and you know all of the – um, the, the frustrations, but also the great things that, that come of that. Um, but as a result of kind of just the way, the way I work, um, a, reading the Bible for me can sometimes be just like an, in, a, an intellectual exercise. Uh, I hope some of you have that same experience and it's not just me. Um, but, but I can read the Bible and I can like dig into it and I can look up the Greek words and be fascinated by it. But sometimes like it doesn't, doesn't connect with the heart because I'm just all, I'm just all head. Um, and so this question of the Shema, of, of loving God with all that we are, is a challenge to me to, to step back and see what parts of my life am I, like, am I holding back? Like, even the way I approach my faith, um, the way I approach my Bible reading, uh, is there, are there parts of my personality even that I just chalk up to my personality because that's a really easy thing to do, right? Like, oh, well, it's not my fault. Uh, it's because my, it's because my dad was a cop when I was little and he didn't let me talk to people. Uh, and so that's why I'm introverted, right? And use those things as a, as an excuse instead of stepping back and saying, um, and what needs to change? Cause it's not okay, right? There's great benefits to, to like the way my brain operates. I know, um, but real struggles when it comes to like letting it really affect me and, and attach to my heart and, and change, um, change things. So we ask this question. Am I loving the Lord with my, all of my intellect? Um, for me, my question, with all of my emotion, uh, with all that I am as a person, with all of my decisions, with all of my muchness. It's important to note, though, um, that we're not, we're not saved by our adherence to the great command, the two great commands. Um, if we think back to that Mark passage, passage, at the very end, what is Jesus or, yeah, what does Jesus tell the scribe? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Why is he not far from the kingdom of God? He, like, he agreed with it, right? He said, man, that's, yeah, love God with all that, that we have and love your neighbor as yourself. I can get on board with that. What was he missing uh, but belief in Jesus Christ as Savior? So um, I think anytime we have a message that talks about sin and our lives and stuff, it can be real easy to get legalistic with it. Uh, and, I, and I never want to do that. Um, in fact, I'd be real, I'd, I have to be real careful um, because I'm a head person and not an emotional person. Uh, compassion and grace sometimes come like after the thinking and those kind of things. Um, and so I always want to be really intentional about making sure that we're, that we're not getting legalistic and Oh, well, if I'm not doing this well, then, like, I'm not saved, right? Because um, the point is that, that we're saved by belief in Jesus as Savior. We're saved by grace through faith alone, like, full stop. Um, but we can't continue to go through life pretending I'm saved, that's it, right? Uh, not just because that's not pleasing to God, but because, like, what are we, like, what are we missing, right? How much more is to be had? Um, there's some, I, I feel like some people live their lives like I'm saved. I just got to suck it up through the rest of this life so I can die and go to heaven, right? Uh, that's not what God has for us.
us, right? He says, I've come to give you life until you die and go to heaven. No, to give you life and to give it to you abundantly, right? Abundant life. And where does that come? It doesn't come from living with our own wisdom. It doesn't come living however we want to live. It comes by doing what God tells us to do. Uh, Not because of fear of being struck down, although that's definitely an element of it, but because if the one who created me, uh, example, we got a new soundboard um, and, and there's a manual to it. Uh, now, I know a little bit, and so there's some buttons I poked without looking at the manual. Uh, but for the most part, I'm not going to sit down and, and mess with it without, like, at least some idea of the manual, right? Because somebody else smarter than me who knows how that stuff works made it. So I'm going to tell me, I'm going to do what they tell me to do. How to, I'm not just going to, like, start poking buttons and, like, oh, I, I heard Wes today. Must have done something, right? Um, and yet, so many times we want to live life just ignoring like the one who created us, the one who gives us life, it's not just about, not just about, it's partly about pleasing God, but it's not just about pleasing God. It's about living a life that's like good, right? Living a life that's good because the one who created us has given us directions of how to live a wise life, of how to make good decisions, about how to, how to be emotionally like stable, about how to, to intellectually think through things, So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And asking God for revival, like we've been doing at Northridge, what we're asking God to do is to to come and to reorient our lives and to take our our heart, our our, our lev, our nefesh, and our me'od that's been focused elsewhere and to bring those affections back to him, back to where they're supposed to be. We're asking for God's presence uh, in such a way that, that we don't want our lives to be pointed any other direction. One, because we want to please God, for sure. But two, uh, because like, I want, I want my life to be as good as it can be, right? And how is it the best that it can be? By following God's direction. I'm sure some of you, like me, have had seasons in your life um, that were not uh, just spiritually where they should be, right? And I think you can look back and think like, well, at the time, maybe I thought I was having fun. Maybe I thought it was great. But you can look back at those times and be like, man, what a, what a wasted one or two or three years or decades or whatever it may be. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Um, I'm going to ask Wes to, to come up and he's going to, um, play and sing or play or something, whatever he wants to do. Um, and we're just going to have a time, um, we'll call it an invitation, but just a response time. Um, just a few minutes, the length of one song. If you want to come up and pray, great. If you want to sit in your chair and pray, um, great. Uh, if, if you're thinking about what we're going to eat, like that's, that's between you and the Lord, right? I'm not, I'm not here to cast judgment on what anybody's doing during this time. But we always want to have this time to, um, to allow you the opportunity to, to respond in the way you feel the Lord leading you to respond. So is West Place.